Let us read John 13, 1 through 20 together. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Tonight, we continue to commemorate the final days of Jesus' life. Last week, we studied his anointing at Bethany, and we, of course, on Sunday, looked at the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Today, we turn our eyes to the Last Supper. This is the final night before his crucifixion. In a few short hours, they will go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be arrested and taken away to stand trial. All four Gospels include this final meal, where the communion service was implemented, where he made the promises of his coming Holy Spirit, and where Peter swore that he would never deny him. But only the Gospel of John includes this story. Imagine, if you will, the energy of this room. This is Thursday night. This is the end of quite a week. On Sunday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to wild acclaim from the crowds. On Monday, he had gone into the temple and driven out the money changers with a whip. On Tuesday, he had wrangled with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple courts and gotten the better of them in every debate. On Wednesday, he had delivered the Olivet Discourse to his disciples, prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And the Gospels are full of other marvelous things that took place during Holy Week, all of which are worth your time and devotion. The exact sequence of them is unimportant. What matters is that they happened. But now it is Thursday. You will recall Jesus was not staying in Jerusalem during the feast. He would retire at the end of each day to Bethany on the Mount of Olives, where he seems to have been staying with either Lazarus or Simon the leper. But on Thursday morning, he sent Peter and John into the city to prepare a place where he could observe the Passover meal. Luke 22, 10-13 tells us this. He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I should make a note here, in case you ever run across this in your own study, if you've ever wondered why it works this way. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make it very clear that Jesus observed the Passover meal on Thursday night. However, in John, we see some things that make it sound as if Passover should have been observed on Friday night. In John 19, 14, it calls Friday the day of the preparation of the Passover. 
1828 of John. It says the Sanhedrin would not enter Pilate's headquarters on Friday so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So it seems to indicate that Jesus ate the Passover a day early on Thursday when everybody else was getting ready to eat it on Friday. And this is one of several puzzles that we have trying to reconcile the four Gospels together, coming up with what's called a harmony of the Gospels. But I think this one is actually reasonably straightforward. The Passover was one day. It was a one-day festival, and it was followed by seven days of what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that entire week, because it was kicked off by Passover, was often called Passover week, or just the Passover. So when it says the Sanhedrin were concerned about eating the Passover meal, it wasn't necessarily the Passover meal specifically with the sacrificial lamb. It could have been referring to the unleavened bread that they would have had every night that week. If that's also the case, when it says the day of the preparation of the Passover is referring to the Sabbath, not to the Passover itself. If you read the other synoptic gospels, they also call Friday the day of preparation. And that is almost always in reference to the Sabbath day, getting ready for the Sabbath on Saturday. So the preparation of the Passover is like saying the preparation day that happened during Passover week. There are other solutions I think this is the simplest one. There are some other good ones, though. I encourage you to search them out for yourselves. But if you come across that, what happened was Passover fell on Thursday night. And then for the rest of that week, seven days following, they had what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they sometimes colloquially referred to as Passover. Kind of like on December 20th, we'll say, come on, it's Christmas, even though it's not technically Christmas, but you get the idea. So if that's interesting to you, great. If not, let's go ahead and move on. Whatever the case, Jesus' disciples have prepared the upper room for the Passover feast. This feast was to be held at twilight. So sometime in the afternoon, Peter and John have probably gone to the temple. They would have had a lamb sacrificed there. They would have had to prepare unleavened bread and wine and bitter herbs for the meal. Meanwhile, Jesus, in that afternoon, is trying to extricate himself from the crowds, I would imagine. No doubt he was on his way to the house, but he's being stopped along the way by enthusiastic supporters, right? Treating him like a celebrity or a revolutionary. Maybe there were some zealots that took him aside and discreetly say, hey, we're with you. If you're ready to fight, we're ready to fight. Maybe there was a detachment of Roman soldiers that was following him around just to making sure he didn't start any kind of trouble. I wonder if there was anybody that he healed on the road to this room. If the disciples were just tasked with making a space and making it so that Jesus could get through. I don't know. However it may have gone, they arrived at this place around late afternoon and these 10 disciples and the Lord would have tramped up the stairs and into a scene that they could not have known but would be immortalized forever in Holy Scripture and commemorated around the world for thousands of years and really for all of eternity when you think about it. I'm sure that the young men who followed Jesus, as usual, were boisterous and excited as they sat down. I don't know if Peter and John were already there waiting for them or if they got there and were waiting for Peter and John to arrive. But I bet you they were talking. (laughs) That's what the disciples did. Excitedly discussing everything that happened. Sharing stories from the day. Hey, I talked to this one guy and he said this about Jesus. Uh, Maybe they were planning for the future. Hey, tomorrow, here's what we're going to go do tomorrow. Maybe they were trying to one-up one another. Like, hey, I actually uh, healed somebody in the temple today. Oh, that's great. I healed two people. And you know how the disciples did. And as they gabbed, they would have taken their sandals off at the door and nobody washed anyone else's feet. Not so weird in the United States of America in 2020. But this was part of the culture of the day. Because everyone wore sandals and the roads were not paved, a person's feet would have become filthy by the end of the day. If you've ever been to a third world country and you've seen the livestock and the other feral animals that are making their way through the streets, you have an idea of what this was like. Add to this the fact that in the Orient, people would recline next to each other at the table. You'd be leaning down next to the other guy's feet. So the need for foot washing was very important. Also, as part of the culture of hospitality that they had there, the host of a meal would provide the means for the feet to be washed. Typically, this was the servant, the lowest of the low. This is the ultimate unskilled position, right? If there was no servant in the house, then the children would do it, starting at the oldest and working their way down, or rather starting at the youngest and going going up from there. If there were no children then his wife would do it. If he was unmarried or his wife was indisposed or not there for some reason, the host himself would wash the feet of the guests. It was indispensable. It had to be done. This is unfamiliar to us, but it's important to understand or you won't get this passage. 
To not offer to wash the feet of a guest was very rude. You'll remember in Luke 7, 44, Jesus was in the house of Simon, the Pharisee, and the woman came in and began to weep over his feet, and Simon is sitting there being all full of himself. He wouldn't let this woman touch him if he knew who she was. Jesus said, though, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He's like, you insulted me by not offering to wash my feet when I came in. Well, the disciples and Jesus are ready to eat the Passover meal, and no one's feet have been washed. It does not say if the disciples were arguing about this, but I can imagine it was starting to get tense in the room as time went on and nobody raised their hand to volunteer because the disciples were always jockeying for position. Several times in the gospel, they argued over which one was the greatest. And in fact, Luke 22 tells us they're going to have that argument tonight at that dinner table. They're going to fight over who's better than everybody else. So for one of them to stoop down and offer to wash the other's feet would be to take himself out of the running for who's the greatest. Because he'd be admitting that he was the least of them all. He was at the bottom rung. And so what's the point of arguing about who's the greatest? You've already shown yourself to be the least. But Jesus had told them in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And on this night, despite the preoccupations that would have been going through Jesus's mind, and we're going to talk about those, he gave them the greatest illustration of servant leadership the world had yet seen. Jesus, it says, laid aside his outer garments. You might say he rolled up his sleeves and quietly, without announcing himself, he poured water into a basin and began to wash their feet. I'll bet that as they began to notice what he was doing, this normally rowdy crew fell totally silent. And they're just kind of watching and looking. and No one wants to say anything anymore. No doubt they were shamed by the humility of their teacher. The teacher, the rabbi, the Messiah, who did not shrink from performing a task the rest of them were too proud to do. It may not have been clear in that room who was the lowest on the ladder, but it was pretty obvious who was on top. It was Jesus, and he was the one washing their feet. When my father was in Nepal one time at a pastor's conference, whenever they finished a meal, they would take his plate away and they would wash it for him. Well, one time he goes to wash his plate himself, and they kind of stand in the way. Oh, no, 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 no. You give us that. We'll wash that for you. But he insisted on washing the plate. And they kind of got nervous because it was a shameful thing to let the visiting pastor wash his own plate. But my father insisted because he was teaching them the same humility that Jesus was trying to teach here. Humility and sincere, sacrificial love. And in verse 14, Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is not the institution of a new ritual to be done in the church. This is a symbolic act of how we are to love one another. The Bible is full of descriptions of humility and love. A selfish man might try to use his own definitions of love and humility to get away with serving his flesh, but Jesus showed us what love looks like, what humility really looks like. It is this humble, practical, sacrificial love that we are to imitate towards one another. And in the first three verses of this passage, it gives us four things that were on Jesus's mind before he washed their feet. And these are going to be our, our organizing principles for tonight. We know what we are to do. We know what the, the conclusion is. We're supposed to wash each other's feet, so to speak. That is to love each other practically and humbly. But these four thoughts of Jesus tell us why and how. Number one, Jesus knew he was going to the cross. Number two, Jesus knew he loved his disciples. Number three, Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. And number four, Jesus knew he had all authority as the Son of God. If we can learn to think like Jesus thought tonight, it will become natural for us to act like Jesus acted and to love like he loved. So let's look at these now. Number one, Jesus knew he was going to the cross. It says Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The time had finally come for Jesus to go to the cross and he knew it. Now Jesus was the son of God, but he was also 100% man, remember. He did not face his fate with cold, stoic logic. Just the imperturbable God. No, no, no. He felt that fear deep in his bones, wouldn't you? In a few hours, it says he'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, in agony. 
his sweat like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The Roman cross was a torturous way to die. They put nails in your wrists and your ankles, and that is the only thing that is to hold your body up, hanging there. Eventually, the death was from asphyxiation because you just couldn't push yourself up on those nails anymore, and your rib cage would actually compress your lungs until you asphyxiated. Although Jesus would actually die sooner because he had suffered such a terrible scourging at the hand of Pontius Pilate that the trauma and the blood loss did for him before he would have asphyxiated. In the previous chapter, John 12, when he knew his death was right around the corner, he said, Now my soul is troubled. When he knew the cross was coming up and they were on the way to Jerusalem, he says, My soul is troubled. That's what he's feeling. But he goes on and says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Despite the agony of mind he was enduring now in the upper room and the physical agony he would endure in a few hours, he was not about to turn aside from his path because, as he said, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus was born that he might die as a sacrifice on the cross. While we know the date of the crucifixion, circa 30 AD, it's pretty reasonable that that's the date. It was an event that took place in time. It was God's plan from the very beginning. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, listen to this now. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. The plan of God, the will of God, the mystery of his purpose. In eternity past, before the first act of creation, the Holy Trinity purposed to redeem those that he would make in his image. God would not allow the deceit of Satan to ruin the world that he had made, nor to steal away the children that he had fashioned with his own hands. But in order to effect their redemption, a man who had known no sin had to die as a sacrifice in their place. But there was no such man, and the Lord knew there never would be such a man. That is why the Son of God, the Word, the Logos of God, would have to become a man. Only as a man could he die for men, but only as God could he die for all men. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, held on too tightly. Don't take it from me. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary and the greatest miracle the world will ever know. God became a man. He emptied himself. This is known as the kenosis from the Greek word meaning empty. This is not to say, listen now, that he ceased being God or that his divinity was diminished. It's, it's unthinkable to think of God being less than God. No, no, no. He emptied himself of what? Of his divine privileges and prerogatives. For the duration of his life on earth, he would not live as God, but he would live as a man. He took on the form of a servant, it says. Just as he was in the form of God, he took on the form of a servant. That word for form is the same, morphe in Greek, meaning that whatever he had as God, he took on as man. Jesus of Nazareth, as he would be called in his life, was 100% God and 100% man. His twin natures are not mixed together. They're not diluted to make room for each other. He dwells in what we call the hypostatic union. God and man bound up in the same person. He took on that verse says in our likeness, our homoioma, our sameness would be a literal translation of that. Forever and ever, the second person of the Trinity has bound himself to humanity in his very nature. As he lived his life, he lived as we did and experienced all the joys and sorrows of life on earth. While he had full access to his holy omnipotence, the command of legions of angels, he did not avail himself of those divine privileges, but he lived in abject humility, just as we do. In fact, that passage in Philippians 2 goes on to say, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
This was why he had come. This was the plan of the Trinity from before the world began. And on the night of the Last Supper, he knew it was time. This is why he had come into the world, to die on the cross. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews spends considerable time explaining the death of Jesus was the climactic event in all of history. It was the end of the law. It was the fulfillment of everything that Moses stood for. Jesus inaugurated a better covenant as a better high priest because he offered a better sacrifice before God. Hebrews 7, 26-27, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. By his death, Jesus propitiated the wrath of God that should have been poured out on us. The Israelites offered bulls and lambs every single day, but these could not take away sins. Only the death of the one who sinned could pay for sin. But Jesus Christ the God-man, by his divine sinlessness, was able to offer up an acceptable sacrifice once and for all. As you read in Ephesians moments ago, this was the eternal plan of God to provide, as it said, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Before he ever said, let there be light, God knew that if he created man, man would fall to the temptations of the devil. He knew that in order to atone for such a wicked rebellion, he would have to send his only son to take on flesh and die in their place. And he created us anyway. In his great mercy and love, our magnificent triune God did not shrink from pain and humiliation for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. That's why Jesus came. As he said in John 12, 27, for this purpose, I have come to this hour to die on the cross for sins. All his life, this was always the final destination. No matter how large the crowds grew, no matter how sweet life was to him, he knew that at the end of it, there was a cross waiting for him. He knew it here at the Last Supper. So few things remained between him and his suffering. When he came to the upper room, it was the first thing on his mind. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And that road of departure led through Calvary. And yet, despite the gravity of that moment, despite the fear that is going to set him to shaking later, and despite the fact that he was the very son of God in human flesh, he knelt down and began to wash his disciples' feet. This was the love that he demonstrated. The same love that would send him to the cross. This is sacrificial love. If he was willing to lay down his life for these men, why would he fail to show them common hospitality to protect his dignity? He's going to be humiliated before the whole city of Jerusalem tomorrow. He didn't hold on to his dignity. He was willing to show sacrificial love, not just the next day, but every day. When Jesus showed that love to the 12, the cross was on his mind. The cross was his supreme motivation, the reason for his very life. And it is to be the supreme motivation of your life as well. Why should we show sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters? Because Jesus Christ showed sacrificial love to us on the cross. Christian love is sacrificial. A Christian is willing to sacrifice in order to love someone else. Love that gives up nothing is not real love. We may talk of love and sing of love and think pious thoughts about love, but if we are unwilling to make the sacrifice in the moment, we show that we have not yet learned what love really means. John wrote, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love under the cross is not afraid to sacrifice time. Jesus had less than 24 hours to live. And he used one of them to wash the feet of his disciples. We're so stingy with our time. It seems like we only ever work or worship or talk on the phone so that we can hang up and get back to serving ourselves. What do you do with your time anyway? It's not as if you're composing some miraculous symphony that's going to change the world. So why are you so jealous of your time? Give of your time. Don't mimic the attitude of the world. Isn't it sad that if you look on Facebook or wherever, people even resent the time they give to their children. 
Talking all sarcastic and snide about, oh, these kids have taken away all my life and my time. It's, it's ridiculous. You'll have plenty of time to play Candy Crush in heaven. And if that sounds ridiculous to you, then why are you bothering with it now? Come on, guys. Take the time to listen to one another. Don't rush out of conversations with each other. Don't try to back out as quick as you can. Talk with one another. Take the time to enjoy each other's company. Don't count the minutes. And take the time to notice when someone's feet might need washing. And by that I mean notice when somebody is in need of sacrificial love. You've got to have your eyes up to know that. Love under the cross is not afraid to sacrifice effort. Jesus had to get down on his knees and perform a task that most slaves didn't even have to do. So often we love the idea of sacrificial love until somebody needs help moving. Or until they need us to bring them a can of gasoline on the freeway. And even if we do step out to help, we're grumbling and complaining the whole way. And we let them know over the phone, I'm coming this time, but I'm really not happy about it. Please don't ask me ever again. Jesus did not open his mouth even as the soldiers struck and mocked him. What makes your effort so valuable? Help one another and do a great job when you do it. When you help a brother or sister in Christ, do an outstanding job. Babysit their children. Help change a tire. Cover the lawn care while they're sick. Do the things that you hate to do for other people. That's sacrificial love. The world sees it as rude to presume upon someone's help. But in the church, our default attitude is sacrificial love. And love under the cross is not afraid to sacrifice resources. This is where most of us draw the line. I'll help. I'll listen. Might even pray for you. But asking for money is entirely inappropriate. Most of us listening tonight would be probably be too embarrassed to even ask for help if we needed it. If we needed money or if we needed food. We'd be too embarrassed to even ask because we know the looks that we're going to get from people. Did you not hear what John said a moment ago? If you have the means to help somebody and withhold it, how can you claim to be a child of the cross? What did Jesus withhold from you? He taught us during his life that money and the other treasures of this world, they're not motivators for us. They're just tools to invest in heavenly riches. Be generous with your money and give freely. And if you have no money to give, what do you have? Do you have skills? Do you have tools? Do you have education? Tabitha made clothes for the widows in Acts chapter 9. And the church grieved for her so much, God granted her a resurrection. Sacrificial love actively seeks out opportunities to wash the feet of the brethren in the church. Because we have the example of Jesus on the cross. This is why Paul could travel around the Mediterranean Sea and endure prison, beatings, and slander in every city. He told the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was enough of a motivation for him. When everything else is stripped away, it is still true that Jesus died for us. And that is to compel our behavior toward one another. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and knew he was going to the cross. The second thing we see in verse 1 is that Jesus knew that he loved his disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I have a picture in my mind of Jesus standing back from the bustle of the room for a minute and taking a long look at each disciple in turn, knowing that this was the end of a long road that would not resume until he came again in his kingdom. He loved his disciples, not just with the sacrificial love of the cross, but with the sincere love of a friend and a brother. Greater love has no one than this, he would tell them later that night, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. There was a story behind the inclusion of each one of these 12 men. Some of them are known to us through the Gospels. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist until he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. Andrew actually seems to have been a focal point for many of the disciples coming to Jesus. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were his fellow fishermen, as was his brother Simon Peter. Peter, of course, was chosen by Jesus when he gave them that miraculous catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. Philip was also from their hometown. And if Nathaniel was Bartholomew, if Bartholomew is a last name, so a lot of people think that Nathaniel might be Bartholomew. If that's the case, he was from that same hometown too. They all kind of ran in the same circle. Matthew was a tax collector. He was probably the one that took the taxes from their fishing boats. 
He left his tax table. Remember, he threw that big party for all of his wealthy, sinful friends to meet Jesus. The other Simon was a zealot. He was a revolutionary of radical political ideas. I wonder how Jesus met this guy. And I wonder what it was that drew Jesus to Simon and what drew Simon to Jesus. I wonder about Thomas and Thaddeus and not least of all, Judas Iscariot. Luke tells us in Luke 6, 12 through 13, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve whom he named apostles. Jesus, after a night-long vigil in prayer, hand-picked these twelve guys. Out of the multitudes that followed him, he called them by name. And the twelve were first called, according to Mark 3.14, that they might be with him. Their first calling was not to preach and not to cast out demons, but to be with Jesus. They were to be his constant companions for three years, more than his mother, his brothers, or anybody else. Together, these men had spent countless days walking, nights spent out in the open air, or trying to cram into the room of whatever poor person was willing to welcome them into their house. They'd been through all the land of Israel. They'd been up into the Decapolis together. Before their very eyes, Jesus had taught those parables. He'd healed the sick, raised the dead, walked on water, multiplied the loaves and fishes. Every one of these guys had filled up a basket with extra fragments of bread from the feeding of the 5,000. Every one of them had been on the water when he calmed it with a word. And more than that, every single one of these men would have had their own personal stories of interaction with Jesus. The little details, isn't that what friendship is? The little details that don't mean anything to anybody else. You want to tell me about your friends from college or your friends from high school. The things you remember are the dumb little stories, the little idiosyncrasies that each person had. And they're not interesting to anybody else, but they're so meaningful to you. And I'll bet you for these apostles, those little things that they had with Jesus were more precious than silver as the years went on. Jesus had these moments too. He knew their personalities, their idiosyncrasies, their backgrounds, their failures, their successes. He knew what he was afraid of. He knew what this guy was really good at. He had a hilarious story he could tell about this guy. And he loved them. I remember having this feeling the last time I was leading our youth ministry in Lynchburg at a summer camp. It was the last one I was going to do, and they didn't know it. When we got back, I was going to be announcing that I was stepping down in order to do some other things to get ready for this church plant. But we're having fun, sitting around the bonfire, eating s'mores, singing songs, goofing off, whatever. And I'm just sitting there watching. And I'm like, man, this is it. This is the last time. Imagine Jesus' heart at this moment. And so he decided to wash their feet. This was not just one more parable to illustrate a point, you guys. He loved them and wanted to show them how much he loved them. They had done so much for him, he wanted a chance to serve his friends. I wonder if his hands were shaking as he went from person to person. You know, just thinking to himself, I'm never going to touch him again until the kingdom. We're never going to be together like this ever again until the kingdom comes. I wonder if each person got a personal final word from the Lord. We don't know. But the story certainly made an impression on them. Of course, when he got to Peter, there was a little hiccup. Peter, and I mean, let's give Peter some credit here. Out of his sincere respect for Jesus, and perhaps a soulish desire to show off too. Let's keep, keep it real here. He refused to let Jesus wash his feet. He knew how the culture worked. By allowing Jesus to wash his feet, in a sense, he would be saying, I am higher than you. And he's like, no, 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 we're not doing this. It's kind of like when John the Baptist said, I'm not baptizing you. You baptize me. And what is so wonderful about Jesus is his patience with Peter. He knew that each one of his disciples was unique and he knew them individually. He knew that each one needed to be loved in their own way. He knew that Peter was stout-hearted and stubborn. Qualities that were going to serve the church very, very well in the coming years once the Spirit had come upon him. No one else needed an explanation but Peter did. And so Christ gave him one. Isn't that awesome? Jesus loved Peter's zeal. He didn't hold it against him. He knew what Peter needed, and so he gave it to him in that moment. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. That word for genuine is anupakritas in Greek. It's an, which is a negation, and then hypocritas, which is where we get the word hypocrite from. So literally, let love be without hypocrisy. 
He goes on in the next verse to say, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How do you like that? Jesus not only taught us sacrificial love, he taught us sincere love. Just as his love for the disciples moved him to wash their feet. Not just some cosmic plan that he was a part of. That was part of it. But he sincerely loved them. And sincere love for one another ought to move us to wash one another's feet, so to speak. I love that Paul told us that love should not be hypocritical. Hypocritical love is about the greatest insult one person could offer another. Hypocritical love will roll its eyes the second the person turns around to leave. Hypocritical love will keep checking their phone while a brother in Christ is trying to pour out his heart to you. Hypocritical love will write really sweet things in the birthday card, but write nasty and sarcastic things in the private chat where the person can't see. That's not the kind of love we're supposed to have. There's a phrase that people love to use that pertains to this subject. I love you, but I just don't like you. You ever heard this one? This is something we say when we know that we ought to feel a certain way about somebody, and we have every intention of acting like we did, but really our heart is full of exasperation and anger. And as long as you say that with your tongue in your cheek, you're just joking, okay, it's fine. I'm not going to get down on you. But if you're using this as a justification to withhold affection from somebody or to pile up bitterness in your heart, you got to strike that from your vocabulary right away. Jesus didn't say, love them but don't like them. He said, let love be genuine. Other ideologies, they love humanity in a broad sense. I think of Marxism. Karl Marx wrote about the plight of the working class, the group, right? And these poor, poor people who are too stupid to know that there's no such thing as God. The slaves of the aristocracy, another group. People who hold the Marxism, they claim to have great love for humanity, but in person, if you meet them, they're the most angry, violent people you've ever met in your life. And when their ideas are put in place, it's always murder on an industrial scale. Why is that? I thought they loved people. Well, that's just it. They love people. They love people in an abstract sense. They do not love the world as a collection of individuals, but as a mass. And therefore, they see no problem with inconveniencing or executing a few to help the whole. In fact, Marxist revolutionaries will often grow to despise the very working classes they're trying to help because the working class will resist their reforms. And so then that's when they say, forget it. They're too dumb to know what's good for them, so we're going to put these things in by force. They're too much like a bunch of sheep, not good for anything but to be slaughtered. Hey, Jesus thinks of us as sheep too, but he's a good shepherd. He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. And oh, that's such a difference, isn't it? These other groups, they believe that as long as they do what is best for the people as a whole, it does not matter what happens to the individual. We love them all, so it doesn't matter if we act unloving to a few. All right, true love is what you do, right? It doesn't matter what you believe or feel. Well, it is true that love is a verb. Jesus demonstrated that. He died on the cross. He washed their feet. Paul said, outdo one another in showing honor. But all of that is built upon genuine, non-hypocritical love. Jesus is different from other moral teachers. Hear me on this. Jesus is different from other moral teachers because he requires of us the proper motivations, not just the proper actions. In the Old King James, they translate this literally from the Greek and they call it bowels of mercy. We use the heart as the organ that our love comes from in English, right? We would say, have a heart, right? Well, back then they would say, where are your bowels? And it seems kind of strange to us, but you might call it love on a gut level. You are not just called to do nice things for people, but to have actual affection for the people of God in your gut. Now, I should hope that we're all past that adolescent thing where we say, I can't control how I feel. Grow up. Yes, you can. Sincere love does not fake it. Sincere love trains its heart on how it's supposed to feel. And let's be honest. Some people take a little training to love. Let's just be honest. Some people are harder to love than others. Sometimes people are more like Peter. You want to do something nice for them and they're suspicious and selfish. I'll be real upfront with you. I can be like this. Somebody wants to do something nice for me and I go, why? What's your angle? Just being real. It would be so much easier if you could just dismiss people like that and write them off. But Jesus hasn't given you that option. Have you ever been part of a group that kind of gets fed up with somebody and so they slowly give them the cold shoulder until they kind of get the idea and go away? Some churches are like that. They're like 
they're like the Hunger Games where it's just we're gonna whittle it down until there's only one person left, or it's like Fortnite where the circle is always getting smaller and smaller until there's just like one or two people left. People who are difficult to love can be exhausting. They can be annoying. But if you persist in showing love to someone like Simon Peter, you will find that they will be the most loyal, affectionate friends you will ever make. It is worth putting forth the effort to love difficult people. How do you train yourself then? Okay, I've got to make myself do this. How? How do I train myself to love someone sincerely? First, this might be a relief to some of you. You have to acknowledge that there are some people with whom you are just never going to be best friends. That's okay. You're not looking for a date to the prom. You're looking for someone that you can love as a brother or sister. Fellas, do you remember back in high school when you only ever talked to a girl if you were angling for a date? That was kind of the way it was. Let's just be honest. Treating people like that, you got to grow out of it because that causes you to put people in categories like useful or not useful. And if you find somebody who's not useful, you push them off to the side. Well, let's get rid of that. If you can recognize you're not looking for a fishing buddy, you're looking for somebody that you can love. You're not trying to add anything to yourself. You're trying to love them. Start there. Secondly, if you want to start training yourself to love sincerely, you got to put in the time. Most people put up some kind of front when they meet somebody. And let me, let me just say this. That's for the best. I'm okay with people wearing a little mask the first time you meet them. I thought Christians weren't supposed to wear masks. We're not, but just bear with me. No one needs to see all of you at once on the first day. <laughs> Isn't that true? Have you ever met somebody that does that? You say hello, and the next thing you know, bam, there it all is. Most of the time, a super obnoxious person, that whole persona will melt away the more you get to know them. Or a really shy person. I'm not just talking about somebody that's kind of quiet. Somebody that won't even talk back to you when you say hello. If you put in the time, they will start to open up. Even people, let's put it the other way, who seem fun and outgoing often feel pressured to feel happy and be funny all the time. And if you can be the one to stick with them when that facade slips away, they'll love you for it. So purpose to have conversations that go deeper than the surface. Doesn't have to go a lot deeper. Just go a little deeper. Just a little deeper. Say hello at church. If you're having a group thing, invite them to the group thing. Take the time to see who they really are and love them how they need to be loved. Just how Jesus knew what Peter needed, know what these people need and love them that way. And third, easy one, but difficult. Take it to the Lord. Just take it to the Lord. Pray about it. God loves everyone sincerely, even you. And you're not the taught stuff yourself, by the way, before you start talking about people. You know who you are. But that means that God sees everything that is lovable about every person in the whole world, and he can show it to you. He can show you what is worth loving in a person. You can be the one that draws the lovable side out of somebody. Isn't that great? In that sense, we become a sanctifying presence for one another. If you just can't stand somebody, take it to the Lord in prayer. It's really hard to hate somebody after you've spent 100 hours in prayer for them. And if 100 doesn't work, try 1,000, and we'll see how we feel after that. Jesus knew he loved his disciples, and so he washed their feet. It's so much easier to do something nice for somebody than to actually learn to care for them. The Lord requires that you do both. So if you have a hard time loving people for their own sake, do it for his. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's 1 Peter 1.22. Number three, Jesus knew... He was going to be betrayed. It says the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We saw last week, Judas only valued his relationship with Christ as far as it could profit him. And when he realized that Jesus was serious about this whole not of this world thing, he went to the high priests to get paid to betray Jesus. At this very moment, there was a detachment of soldiers waiting for Judas to come and give them word where Jesus was. And Jesus knew it. He mentions it to him in verses 18 and 19. If you look down a little farther to verse 21, he tells him straight out, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And while he just can't bring himself to say the name out loud, he lets him know who it is. In verse 18, he's quoting from Psalm 41, verse 9, where it says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
If you read that psalm, the next verse has a reference to the resurrection. It says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Zechariah 11 has a long passage foretelling the betrayal of Jesus. In it, Zechariah, he's the prophet, and he, he takes charge of the sheep herds. He becomes the chief shepherd because there's a lot of corruption in that industry and he's trying to fix it. Well, the corrupt shepherds would rather get rid of him than do business honestly. So they pay him 30 pieces of silver as severance pay. This is kind of go away money that they give to Zechariah, and he throws it into the temple courts, just like Judas did. It was a picture, just as the shepherds of Israel didn't want to govern the people of God fairly and justly, so they were willing to pay somebody off to get rid of Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. It had been foretold that the Messiah would be betrayed to his death. Woe, said Jesus in Mark 14, 21, to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's rough. It was foretold, but let me just make it clear. Judas was not compelled. It wasn't some prophecy with its hand on the back of his head forcing him to do it. He sold Jesus out on his own. And he would even identify him to the soldiers with a kiss. And Jesus knew that. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. But he washed Judas' feet too. Do you think he choked back tears as he remembered the moment when Judas first came to him? Do you think that Jesus, whenever it was, was surprised when the Father revealed to him who was going to betray him? Do you think he was in that act of prayer and he thinks to himself, Oh, no, Lord, not Judas. No, please, Father, no. How often do you think he would prayed for Judas to do the right thing rather than betray him? But there he is, in a supreme act of love and humility, washing the feet of his betrayer. It was exactly that kind of selfless love that Judas could not understand. Just as Jesus knew that he would be betrayed, we must know that when we try to love other people, we will get burned along the way. But the kind of love that would wash the feet of a brother is selfless love. If we were only in this for what we could get out of it, we would snatch back our love the second we knew somebody was plotting against us. But you do not love somebody for your own sake. That's slavery, not love. We love people for their own sake, selflessly. Love is doing what is best for someone else. And I does not factor into the equation. I've been betrayed before. Not on the level that Jesus experienced. I've had people that I loved and that I served alongside for years work behind the scenes to stab me in the back and take what I had for themselves. Now, I'm not a crier. In those instances, I did not weep out of sorrow. I got angry. And in one case, when I confronted the person and they still maintained that fake attitude, lying right to my face and I knew they were lying, all I wanted to do was swear off that person forever. Go away and who cares if I ever see you again? But Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Judas lied to his face by his very presence in that room, and Jesus washed his feet. If you're going to love people, you're going to be betrayed. There will be people who laugh with you and then spread rumors and lies behind your back. You will make a sacrificial gesture to watch them squander it in disdain for what you've given them. There will be times when someone weeps on your shoulder and you're there to comfort them, and then they abandon you and tell stories about how you never, ever cared for them. You will pour your life and your heart into people in the church. You will take their midnight phone calls. You'll walk with them through every crisis. You'll defend their honor when people are trying to warn you that they're a bad guy or a bad girl. And then they'll leave the church with a letter saying that they're just not getting their needs met. Don't wonder if this is a certainty. It will happen. And it will happen to you. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, said this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first 
and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What does that mean? Jesus said that the church would be full of people, some wheat and some weeds, and we would not always be able to tell which was which. That means when you love people in the church, you are taking the risk of loving a weed who's going to throw it right back in your face. When David was king, his son Absalom secretly plotted against him. He was redirecting people away from David. People would come into the city and he'd be there at the gate. Oh, where are you going? Well, we're here to see the king. And Absalom goes, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm the prince. I'm, I'm the king's son. He can't see you. He's too busy. Oh, yeah, I know. It's a shame. But, you know, I, your case sounds good to me. If it was me, I would give it to you right away. And it says that Absalom stole the heart of the people away from David. And then Absalom staged a coup, raised an army to come against his father. And David had to flee Jerusalem. And there was, a, there was a counselor that David had, one of his most trusted advisors named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel conspired with Absalom to drive David out and his heart was broken. It says that they left the city and this mighty man of God, this warrior who'd won countless victories, ousted by his own son. And they wept as they left. He wrote about that time in Psalm 55, 12 through 14. Tell me if you can relate with this. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Nothing hurts more than the betrayal of a brother or sister in Christ. The man who creeps in and rallies people to his side and then splits the church to start his own. The woman who comes in for counseling and then sues the church for sexual abuse when no such thing has happened. The ministry partner who publishes an article about the ineptitude of your ministry. It hurts. And it hurts worse than any outside persecution. But this is what we're called to do. Jesus set us the example to wash the feet even of our betrayers or our potential betrayers. We are not permitted in Christ Jesus to harden our hearts toward the people of God. We are to endure suffering even at the hands of the church and to trust God to sort out the harvest in the end. Even Jesus with his own betrayer would say nothing more than what you're going to do, do quickly. And besides, who knows if the love that you show, even in the midst of betrayal, might not turn that person's heart away from betrayal. Perhaps your readiness to forgive could melt the heart of stone and gain you an ally rather than an enemy. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love believes and hopes all things. Love is willing to believe that the traitor can be redeemed, hope that the prodigal will return, even when everyone else has given it up as hopeless. Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed, and yet he washed the feet of his disciples anyway. Real love is selfless. Jesus saw the possibility, really the certainty of being hurt as worth the risk, and so should we. Fourth and finally, Jesus knew he had all authority as the Son of God. He came in that night, as it says in verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He emphasized this to his disciples as well in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And yet with all of that authority, the authority as he would tell Peter later to call for 12 legions of angels, he knelt down and washed their feet. The decisions of that night were entirely in Jesus' hands. As he said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He did not have to go to the cross or stand trial in a kangaroo court or be scourged. He was the son of God and he was and remains obligated to do nothing. Yet in the garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. That act of submission was the final confirmation that he would go to the cross, and he did. Returning to Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. By submitting to his father's will, he was humbled to the lowest possible point. But now God has exalted him to his right hand. And someday Christ will return 
to take ownership of the kingdom that is rightfully his. And he will reign for a thousand years. Then comes the end, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That authority has been granted to him in the economy of the Holy Trinity, and it will be returned to God the Father. Jesus chose to exercise his authority, his rights, you might say, in submission to the Father. He did not use his authority to make demands of the twelve, but to demonstrate to them what true godly authority looks like. He had taught them in Mark 10, 42-45, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He had taught them this, and now he was showing them. He showed them what servant leadership looks like. Through this, he taught us that the key to godly authority is not dominance, but love and submission. By washing their feet, Jesus had, in a sense, submitted to his disciples. If we understand submitted to mean stood aside for or deferred to, he deferred his own rights to meet their needs. That is godly submission. Christ's love is submissive and yours is to be too. That means, first of all, that you recognize Christ's authority over you. And do as he says, regardless of how it makes you feel. Jesus Christ has all authority, and he told you to love your neighbor. If then, he said, I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. A servant is not greater than his master. You have no right to withhold love from anybody. Jesus has commanded you to love, and he outranks you. That makes it pretty simple. You don't have to have a meeting with yourself to decide whether or not you want to love somebody in all the ways we've discussed tonight. That decision has been made for you by the one who has all authority. He even said to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. It's a settled conclusion. Congratulations. You no longer have to worry whether or not you're going to live a life of love. Jesus has already handled that. And he shows us too. That even if we do have a higher level of authority than someone else in the flesh, that does not excuse us from showing the kind of love that would wash another's feet. Real big on rights in this country. People always fighting to have their rights legally defined so that they're no longer obligated to do certain things. But in the church of Jesus Christ, it's all about dying to ourselves. The pyramid is inverted in the church. Those with the most authority are to be those who best exemplify submissive servant leadership. That's why in the church, you should think nothing of seeing the millionaire scrub the toilets while the professional janitor preaches in the pulpit. We don't insist on our own way here. It is our joy to defer to one another. And I should add that it's the pastor's job to shepherd the flock and correct anybody who wants to take advantage of the godliness of others to promote themselves. That didn't go on in the upper room, and it's not going to happen here. Ephesians 5.21 says we should always be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That does not eliminate the reality of hierarchy in the church, the family, the state, whatever. But it tells us how to act within those structures, whatever your place is. If every one of us was willing to defer to the other person, and if we were truly seeking to outdo one another in showing honor, there would be no power struggles. There would be no conflicts of any kind for that matter. Christ showed us that godly authority is submissive. The Holy Trinity is three persons in harmonious hierarchy, in submission to one another. That is the very nature of God, and it is to be the very nature of God's people. We don't respect rank and authority here when it comes to love. James, the brother of Jesus, rebuked the church because they were giving rich people special seating, and the dignified guests had a place of honor. He said in James 2.9, If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We don't operate like the world does. We live out submissive love because we know that Christ is the one who has all authority, not us. And that even he, in his universal authority, chose to humble himself and serve in his final hours. Jesus knew that he had all authority as the Son of God, and yet he washed their feet. He went to the cross and taught us to do the same. Those were the four things that were on Jesus' mind during the Last Supper. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he loved his disciples. He knew he was going to be betrayed. And he knew he had all authority as the Son of God. He taught us that love is sacrificial. 
Love is sincere, it's selfless, and it's submissive. And he demonstrated that in one powerful gesture by taking the lowest place and washing the feet of the disciples. Beloved, let us love one another. Christ's example is difficult to follow, but when we consider what he did for us, loving the difficult, loving the traitor, loving the one beneath us, it all becomes so simple. Jesus died on the cross as the payment for our sins, the ultimate humiliation, but followed by the ultimate glory on Resurrection Sunday. He overcame the world, not with a sword, not with an army, not even with an idea, but with love. He overcame the darkness of the world through love. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how we are going to overcome. Love. Love like this. Love that Jesus demonstrated, not only at the Last Supper, but on his last hours as he meekly went to the cross for your sake and mine. We all want to see the world changed. We all want to see things turn around. It all starts with God's people determining that we are actually going to do what he said. To live like he lived and to love one another with practical, sacrificial love. That's how you shine the light of the gospel. They might be able to question what you say, but nobody can question the way that you love.